You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Robert Gressis, it's good to see you. Nice to see you too, Dan Kaufman. Uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia Blogging Heads Meaning of Life TV audiences. I am Dan Kaufman. Uh, I am a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I host this Sophia program, as now does Robert Gressis, who's done a few on his own, and I uh, will be doing more in the future. Um, and I publish an online magazine called The Electric Agora, uh, to which Robert is also a contributor. Uh, Robert, you are an associate professor? No, I'm, I'm full professor. Full professor. I keep getting you confused with Crispin, who's an associate. Um, full mm. professor at Cal State Northridge. Yeah. Um, and um, is there any other stuff you're involved in that you'd like people to know about? Um, gosh. Any other- I mean, other than the Electric Agora, not really. That's like my main involvement, the way I do public <laughs> philosophy. And I'm writing a textbook right now, but that's still germinating. There's still a lot of stuff to do. And What's the textbook? One sec. It's about critical thinking. It's uh, about applying critical thinking to uh, very specific subjects like dating and eating and and money. But, oh, that's um, great. That sounds great, actually, because usually critical thinking is this sort of really weak, generic applied logic. Yeah. And I like the idea of more subject specific. Yeah, the thought is that that, that way people will, will, will be more excited about it and will actually be able to apply it to their lives better because they'll try it out and they'll maybe hopefully see good results and remember it better as a result. But right now, the, the sort of um, the rock my ship has crashed onto is the cognitive biases literature, which if you saw my dialogue with Jamie Edwards, I was reading this book by Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier called The Enigma of Reason. And... Now I'm sort of wondering how to think of cognitive biases as a whole program and whether or not we should even think of them as cognitive biases or just things that, you know, ways reason sometimes leads us astray in very specialized circumstances that don't really have much relevance to much of our lives. And so I'm um, trying to figure out how to think about that. And also, oh, and I'm also working on uh, on arguments right now, uh, argumentation how far theory along, too. How far along is the book? Well, I've written two chapters. I'm writing a third right now. Um, and so uh, I've got a contract with the press. And um, hopefully I should publish it sometime in 2022, I think. Did they impose a hard deadline on you? No. No, they're very, very uh, gentle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the book that I did with Massimo and Sky Cleary, but of course that's a trade press, so it's a different universe. But um, we had a hard we had a hard deadline and um it actually was a challenge to meet um at a certain point um but um anyway it sounds it sounds it sounds great um we are here to discuss a recent this might be a little bit insider but i hope that we're going to generalize to some more to talk about some more general norms that are that are that are implicated but there's a there was a small little sort of kerfuffle in the philosophy social media verse over a review, a book review, and then a response to the book review. So the book was by um, uh, Kate Mann, mm-hmm. who is at this point probably most well-known for her book, Down Girl. She has a new book called Entitled, which covers similar territory um, and um, is very much within – uh, operates within what I've been sort of not not what I've been prejudicially calling woke philosophy, um, but certainly and 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 she is sort of 
a part of a group that I've been referring to as woke philosophers and whose influence I've been bemoaning. Um, but she, um, so, so, so Oliver Trolde, um, who is a graduate student in philosophy at Notre Dame, wrote a review of the book for Arc Digital. Um, and my, my impression, and, and I'm, I'm going to leave it to you to describe yours, is that this was a, um, a civil, um, um, uh, charitable, um, not in any way hostile uh, review, despite the fact that it was critical. Um, um, and um, I thought Oliver bent over backwards to sort of be nice and pleasant and civilized and fair-minded and all of that. Um, and then immediately everybody came out of the woodwork. Um, the, the, the wokosphere came out of the woodwork and started attacking Trolde and attacking the, the, the review and attacking the journal, Arc Digital. Right. Um, and I'm just going to read one excerpt from Mann's little uh, Twitter uh, rant about, I don't know if this appeared on Twitter or somewhere else, but this little rant that, that uh, Mann wrote about it. I'm only going to read the first item. So I'm quoting Mann. I'm reluctant to give any oxygen to the silly, uncharitable, contemptuous review, but maybe it's incumbent on me to respond now that it's getting some attention. Thank largely to the dubious behavior of Arc Digital. Now, I'm going to say one more thing and I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, the dubious behavior, so, so called, is that Arc Digital, upon publishing the review, man immediately blocked them on Twitter. And Arc Digital then posted. A, a screenshot of man's block, right? Mm-hmm. So this is apparently the um, the uh, uh, the unacceptable, unprofessional, however else you want to uh, dubious behavior of Arc Digital, um, and um, so that's what we're here to talk about ostensibly. But I, I, I'm hoping that we can also broaden and generalize out more to the question of what reviews within a in the scholarly frame of reference should be should be what authors' responses to views should be or attitudes to reviews should be, um, and just how everybody in this engaged in this endeavor within the scholarly framework um, should behave. You know, what should the norms be about this sort of thing? Uh, but now I'm going to turn it over to you, Robert, and please let me know uh, your, your feelings about this, what you thought of the review, the book. You've read some of the chapters of the book. I have not. I did read Down Girl, but I haven't read this one. Please let me hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, so I've read three chapters of Entitled. It's a 10-chapter book. It's, I kind of want to say, breezily written. Uh, it's, that, that might give an impression that I don't want to give that it's like, um, that, that it's fun. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't think she would want you, the reader to come away thinking the book was fun because it goes over a lot of um, behavior that seems to be pretty off-putting to put it mildly. And so, um, but I mean, it's, it doesn't read like say a journal article. It reads much more like to me when I was reading it, I was thinking it read a lot more like uh, how a journalist would write a book on a subject. Right. And, uh, and that's not, that's not a a criticism. It just meant that it's kind of, um, it wasn't what I was expecting going in. And I would say, you know, I, I found that down girl was a bit like that too. It was much more, I'd say livelier than your typical work of analytic philosophy. Um, it wasn't, you know, anything like on the plurality of worlds or something like that, which I, I think is a nicely written book, of course, but that one's just, you know, this is, 
it's full of passion, I would say, in a way that on the plurality of worlds doesn't wear in its sleeve. And, um, and I think the issue, I mean, she said in her book that it took her about six years to write it. And I think as well that she found it difficult to write because she had to wade through a lot of stuff that she found very unpleasant to read. And I think, you know, to a large extent, she, she was proud of the book. I'm guessing I, she didn't, I don't recall her saying that, but I'd be surprised if it wasn't true. And, um, and so the, the review I found a uh, very civil, right? The tone, it was no, I, I didn't see like making fun of her. I didn't see the kind of stuff you, you often see when people clearly dislike each other. Like in stuff but, that I write. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. For, for instance, which, your words which not mine. Is not, but which is, to be, to be clear, not presented in a scholarly framework, right? Right. I would not do that if I was writing a review for an academic journal, right? Um, 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 so yeah. Art Digital is not an academic journal, um, but I thought that Oliver stuck to the norms of the sort of thing you would do if yeah. you felt uh, you needed to be professional in that way. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say it's not, and I don't, again, I know this is going to sound like an insult. I really don't mean it as an insult. I don't necessarily think of it as a book of academic philosophy precisely because of how it's written and like what its goal is, which in down girl, she was um, talking about uh, misogyny as she, she, she was basically what that book was about was giving an analysis of misogyny, what she calls um, an ameliorative definition of misogyny. And we're going to get to what an ameliorative definition is later. And she says what entitled is about is about sort of showing um, how this ameliorative de- understanding of misogyny works to explain specific instances of entitled behavior, where entitled behavior is behavior sort of based on this presupposition that I'm entitled to something that in fact I'm not entitled to in a particularly gendered way, right? Where, where men think they're entitled to things in virtue of being men that women are not entitled to and so react with great hostility when they're not given those things or when those things are threatened, when people threaten to take those things away from them. So, um, so it's like bunch, basically a bunch of like case studies, but I think it is not aimed primarily at academic philosophers. I do think it's kind of for the educated public, right? So I think she was trying to write it in a way that it's not like she's crossing all her uh, T's and dotting all her I's in the way that a lot of academic philosophers normally write their work for journals, right? So is she it on an academic say, press? Um, and was you know, it subjected have, to the academic peer review process? Do we know? I, I think I recall reading, and I could be wrong, but I recall reading in Oliver's review that it wasn't okay. um, reviewed by an academic press. I have I have the book on my Kindle, and I'm getting it out right now. Let me go to the uh, cover to see because who the publisher I mean, my, is. My my criticisms would change a lot if it was not an academic book, right? I mean, um, um, and I thought I remembered that Down Girl was an academic book. Well, um, entitled, couldn't, couldn't entitled is from Crown, an imprint of Random House, a division ah, of Penguin so that's Random a trade House. press. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I don't remember if Down Girl is, is trade or not. I think Down Girl's more sort of down the middle philosophy than, um, than entitled is. But that said, you know, Oliver's review, I found it very, um, civil, but at the same time, highly critical, right? And I was, I've been reading the book to see if his, um, if his criticisms of her seem to me to land, like the one of the main criticism I recall reading was that 
she used, she claimed that she was going to use entitled to mean one particular thing. And it turns out she ended up using it in all sorts of different ways, in ways that looked like it suited her. And she very much vehemently denied that in her Twitter response. And so far, I haven't seen these variety of ways that she's using entitled, like Oliver sees. But I think the main issue for me is this. The main question I have is like, is the review a good review or not? And by that, I don't mean, is it nice or, or civil or critical or uncritical? I mean, are its criticisms fair? Are they like ones you could reasonably endorse or are they, do they just totally miss the point? And so here's my question for you. Imagine, and I, this is just, you know, I can't, neither of us can really know until we both read the book, but imagine that we both read the book and we agree that in fact, the, the criticism, the book review really misunderstood the book and really missed the mark. Would you think man's reaction would be justified in that case? Not the, not the specific type of reaction that she gave. In other words, um, um, the react, in other words, I think that the reaction to a bad review in the sense that you are describing mm-hmm. should look very different from the sort of reaction that we got from, from, from man and the reaction that I read out loud. Right. Yeah. Um, um, how, how, how should it look? Well, it should just simply be, it just says simply involve a sort of a point by point response to where it got the, mm-hmm. where the review got the book wrong. But yeah. all of this gratuitous stuff about the, you know, the dubious behavior of the publication at a certain point, I think, uh, she or someone, one of the other uh, woke crowd referred to Trolley as a reactionary. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was all this sort of, you know, I'm just yeah. surprised nobody said alt-right. Um, um, <laughs> you know, it, it just fell into this very similar pattern of yeah. response to any negative criticism of something that is um, sort of, sort of coming from within the sort of the woke, uh, the woke, uh, frame, frame of reference. And I suspect that, um, the, her response, it really almost didn't matter what Trolley wrote about the book so long as it was negative, right? Um, um, I suspect that the reaction would have been the same. In other words, I don't see a lot of good faith mm-hmm. in the response. Now there's, now, now, the response is lengthy. I mean, there are points further down, which are just engagements with specific parts of Trolley's review right. and her claiming that she, that he got them wrong. Um, yeah. And I don't have any problem with that. And I'd have to read the book to decide whether I thought that Trolley was more, more accurate than she said or not. But the fact that the very first com- first reply is this yeah. opening salvo to discredit the magazine, to discredit Trolley, to suggest that she shouldn't have even replied to this in the first place, but now she kind of has to because it's gaining traction. Um, right. All that sort of thing just makes me very suspicious. And given man's track record of behavior already mm-hmm. um, and the behavior of those who are circling the wagons around her, especially Jason Stanley, who I just, I, I keep finding, you know, I, you know, he's blocked me. So, I, but somehow I keep seeing him anyway. Um, yeah. um, um, everywhere. Um, that all to me just says, okay, this is just, this is just naked power politics. That's what this is. This has nothing to do with scholarship. This has nothing to do with the merits or lack thereof, the arguments. It's just about, um, 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 
you know, man is part of a woke crusade and anybody who's a decent civilized human being should be on board. And if you're critical of it, then you're an alt-right racist, sexist, you know, bad person. And the publications you publish in are, are, you know, dubious. And I, I, that's how I feel about the reaction. Um, yeah. but yes, if, if I was reacting in a purely, uh, in the, in a way that, that, you know, if we're talking about what the norm should be, then it should simply be, you know, if your if your complaint is that the review gets you wrong, then you just simply point out where it, how it gets you wrong. Yeah. And, um, I want to, I want to say two things, but before I say that, I want to, I want to, um, note something or like, let's, let's, let's post this and remember it for later. I think we should explore why. Why do we want the reactions to be in the way you articulated rather than in the way man articulated, right? And I have two things to say. The first thing I'll say is this. Um, I, I sometimes see uh, scholars deny that academia has a leftward tilt, right? That they'll say there's no evidence of bias against conservatives in academia. Academia is not left-wing. Most professors are like centrist or center-left. And they, sure, they vote for Democrats in overwhelming numbers, but that's because the Republican Party has gone crazy. And so kind of any respectable centrist is going to be uh, voting for the Democrats. And I, I confess that my initial reaction to such claims is, you got to be kidding me, right? Like, it, it's one thing to say it's fine that it's left wing, but to deny it yeah. just seems to me... Just because there's so much overwhelming survey data done by, you know, organizations like Pew and stuff who who are not don't have a right-wing agenda to push, right? Um, right. Um, um, and yet, it, this does seem to be an issue of scholarly debate, right? Some scholars are are denying that and others are asserting it. And I, and, and I find myself thinking, geez, how is this an issue? How is this a debate? I can totally imagine that um, Mann or Stanley or whomever, Kendi, whatever, would, if you say stuff like, um, you know, some people have said that... Uh, the policeman who killed George Floyd. We don't know for sure that he did it because he was racist, right? Maybe he did it because he did this kind of thing all the time. And because George Floyd had so much fentanyl in his system that it ended up killing him when it normally wouldn't kill him. And so it wasn't evidence of racism, you know, on and on. And people sometimes when they hear that, they're like, you got to be kidding me. Right. Or if you say, you know, this is not necessarily a white supremacist country, you know, look how well Nigerians do compared to, like Somalians, look how well Russian born, or sorry, whites of Russian ethnicity do compared to whites of French ethnicity. Look how well Asians as a group do. Like, you can't really call it white supremacist. You can just say, you know, that certain groups do better than others, and it's really hard to figure out why. And a lot of people are going to look at that and say, you got to be kidding me. So I think to some degree, and I mean, this is just me speculating, I wouldn't be surprised if Mann um, and Stanley and so forth, that's their view about this, like denying that America or the, the world is fundamentally patriarchal, such that patriarchy explains a lot of the behavior of men is something where it's like, you got to be kidding me here. Like, how can you deny that in good faith? Right. And so they might just because uh, I apologize for these cats, but just because there's so much like they feel like they've seen so much data to show that America is patriarchal and white supremacist and so on and so forth, that to deny it, and Charlie doesn't deny it in that book, he just raises alternative explanations about the things she sees as evidence of entitlement. But to even offer these alternative explanations, you're just trying to not face realities. I think how it feels to them. Now, I think, of course, you can feel that way and 
and be wrong, right? Like not every issue is so clear cut as the, as the left wing tilt of academia, right? I think that's a clear cut issue. And when it comes to stuff like police shootings and the role racism plays, I, from what I've seen, I'm no expert. It seems far from clear cut. It seems really hard to figure that out. And so, um, but I think that's part of the reason, part one place where she's coming from. The other place where she's coming from, and this I'm again only speculating is she's kind of a, am I wrong in thinking she's kind of a minor Twitter celebrity? Like, I don't know how many followers she has or, but I imagine she has a lot more than say I do. I mean, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, does she have more than you do? Like, does she oh, have well, thousands? Way, way more. I'm sure. I mean, I only, I only, I think I have almost around 2000, but not, not that much. Uh, yeah. less, less than 2000. Um, um, I'm sure she has more just for, just because of that, you know, the, the, the sort of the sensation around down girl alone. Um, yeah. by the way, I did look it up. Down girl is on Oxford university press and has won academic awards. And so, okay. um, it was, it was presented as an academic book and, um, uh, therefore it seems to me should be judged on, uh, the grounds of its being an academic book. Um, on which I would, by the way, judge it extremely poorly. Um, um, but you know, the, the thing you said about, you know, you gotta be kidding me, you know, there's a version of that that's just an, an intuitive reaction and that's sort of meaningless, right? I mean, okay, so who gives a crap that, that you, you think you gotta be kidding me, right? I mean, sure. um, these are empirical questions and there's either evidence or not, right? Um, in yeah. the, and in the, so in the case of, uh, the, the, the orientation of academics, um, the, uh, you got to be kidding me is not an intuitive reaction. The data is overwhelming and there's multiple sources of it, right? I mean, it's not just, I mean, it's demonstrable as far as empirically things can be demonstrable. Now with regard to race and policing, that is not the case. It is a subject of enormous controversy. Um, and, and uh, you know, prominent black scholars, right? Not of the correct orientation for the woke, but prominent black scholars have, uh, have questioned it and have said, look, once you, once, once you control for, e- for economics and, you know, poverty levels, once you control for numbers of interactions with the, with, with the criminal justice system, once you, you know, the claim that it's, that, that it's, that it's sort of rate, because of racist policing, uh, is unsustainable. Now look, there's, this is obviously disputable. There's probably, you know, data pointing in different directions, but, it just strikes me that to sort of sort of gather it all under the you got to be kidding me reaction. Well, there are self-serving bullshit you got to be kidding me reactions, and then there are well-grounded ones, right? Um, um, and um, and so you know, the idea that you know America is systematically misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that that's that 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 is so well so well demonstrated that uh, you got to be kidding me be, be kidding me re- reaction to any pushback um is anything more than just self-serving non-rigorous non-philosophical um uh game playing i don't see how that's sustainable right i mean um um you know i mean <sighs> Yeah. So, so, I mean, this, again, this is one of those things, what I don't like, where I actually have to know the facts, right? Where I have to know substantive uh, facts here, because like, again, just like to some extent, whether her, whether her reaction, the extent to which her reaction is over reaction or not is to some degree dependent on how fairly the book review portrays the book. Similarly, the extent to which you have the, you gotta be kidding me reaction, whether that's a bullshit reaction or not, depends to a large extent on, well, what does the data say, right? And I'm guessing, 
uh, Kate Mann and I'm sure lots of other scholars have, you know, looked at a lot of this social scientific data and it just seems like, you know, especially if you look primarily at one side, right? It's going to seem overwhelmingly the case that, that the, that the position of America being misogynistic has been established. Now that, that doesn't mean it's okay as a reaction. I'm just saying, I think this part helps, helps to explain some of the perhaps overheated behavior. Look, uh, look our, our main purpose is not to litigate man's book, but I do want to ask you about this question about, um, you know, cause what you're essentially saying is, look, it may be that, you know, she did, you know, that, 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 that her view is based in, uh, a sort of a substantial investigation of the, of the empirical evidence, but the empirical evidence is a mix. So if, you know, you come to it with a sort of a, you only look at this portion of it, it looks a certain way, but I, I'm not, is it, is it clear to us? Is it clear to you that she's actually done any substantial exploration of the empirical evidence at all? Because I didn't get that sense from down girl. Um, um, in down girl, you know, this, there's this enormous amount of weight played placed on this concept of empathy, right? That, yeah. that uh, according to man, um, we, we, we as a collective react more sympathetically to male travails than to female ones. Now, if I was to say to man, gosh, you know, that's interesting. My overwhelming experience in the course of my life, which I don't think is so eccentric and strange, has been that actually people are far more sympathetic to women's travails than to men's. Does she have, is there actually, does she actually have data to prove me wrong? I don't think so because I didn't see any data to back up the empathy uh, assertion to begin with. Right. I mean, she definitely has a few studies she points to, but, you know, how extensive the research has been, I really don't know. I mean, and also, I don't know what it it even takes to qualify as having done extensive research. But yeah, I mean, you know, it might not even be extensive research. It might be all the people you talk to, right? Like, she's at a great university, Cornell, right? She probably talks to a lot of, you know, not just philosophers, but social scientists. She's, like I said, at least a minor celebrity. She, She goes on lots of shows. She probably has lots of invitations. She talks to a lot of the who, who, and so she might get a picture. But I agree with you. We shouldn't make this too man-centric. Um, and so we should talk about, like, some of the, the ethics of book reviews. And also, what the other thing I want to talk about, besides the you've got to be kidding me stuff, is the what it's like to be a Twitter celebrity, right? How often, like, to what extent does Twitter encourage this kind of behavior? Like, if, if to, to react very sort of genteelly to this, does that disappoint your followers? Does it like, does it encourage people to go at you even harder? Right? Does it incite people? Like, so, like Oliver Trelde did not react very heatedly to her reaction, right? He's like, you know, you know, I'm, 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 that's too bad that she didn't like my review. I always considered a failure when, um, he actually when, took the onus on himself. He was incredibly generous. Right. Um, and Do you I think also, that was a good reaction. I also perceive, part? I also perceive, that he was scared. Um, 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 mm-hmm. And, and I, I, this is the last thing I promised that I'm going to say about specifically about man, but this is really about her reaction. Yeah. I find it ironic bordering on surreal mm-hmm. that we're talking about a book called entitled. Right. Okay. <laughs> and what we're our, what our specific topic is, is the reactions of, a very institutionally powerful, mm-hmm. highly pedigreed, right? Uh, white middle class female scholar, right? With a army of very aggressive and also very highly placed and powerful supporters. Um, 
expressing resentment and hostility towards a review written by a graduate student. Right. Yeah. Um, um, let's put it this way. She and her gang could ruin him professionally. He yeah. can do nothing to her. Right. So I want to know who's entitled, Kate. Entitled. <laughs> who's behaving like they're entitled, right? Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it, it just makes me, I gotta, if I'm speaking honestly, it makes me sick, to be honest, for how yeah. dishonest it is. And the fact that it's in this academic architecture makes me even sicker because it makes yeah. it even more dishonest. And so, um, you know, I actually have a hard time. I've actually committed myself with all the stuff about wokeism that I will only write non-academic kind of humorous pieces because the actors and their behavior make me so sick. I don't feel like I can be objective about it. Um, um, I, I view this as about the worst behavior that someone who's supposed to be a professional scholar could engage in. Yeah. And I, I just find it unbelievable to the point of nausea that someone could build a career about complaining about other people's entitlement yeah. and then go after a, a young, harmless, and weak graduate student like this. That's the last yeah. thing I'm going to say about this. But I do find the whole thing incredibly ironic. Well, this actually is a good segue to the stuff about Twitter because I think one of the feelings it gives you is that, like, there are teams, right? There are sides. There are, like, bands of roving warriors. Admittedly, they're just online. But that, like, you, like, she's one of the the leaders of her, at least on her philosophy team, right? And so... um I, I'm guessing that she would think that philosophy as a discipline has a long, long way to go, right? And that although Oliver Trolley is just a graduate student, um, at the same time, he represents forces that are much more powerful and certainly much more powerful than her force. And so maybe, and this is just me trying to figure out a way to defend the reaction, because I agree the fact that he's a graduate student. I mean, she hasn't tried to ruin him, so far as I know. No, 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 no. So, I mean, just, it just, just that, 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 that online brouhaha could have by itself ruined him if yeah. enough of it had gotten to the admin, academic administration of his institution, right? I mean, I mean yeah. that's the game we're in now, right? Yeah, and but I mean, I do think that there's also, I, I think... I think um, that, yeah, so so there's a, maybe a way to make it so that it's not like attacking somebody a lot less enti- or powerful than you, though it's, I think, I admit, a reach. But I think the other thing is that there's just so much within the Twitterverse that incentivizes this kind of behavior, right? I think, I just oh, think absolutely. so many more eyes are drawn to it. So many more, you know, yas queens are like given to you if you like are aggressive than if you are just, um, you know, like I said, very genteel and calm and like, well, I disagree with that. I don't think these criticisms land. I really don't feel like I should respond because, you know, so much of it is missed, but if people want me to here, I will, you could do that, but it's not going to get as much of a, like, you know, peep the get, cue the gift of the person eating the popcorn, right. You know, watching the fireworks, yeah. like yeah. It, 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 I don't know. I don't know if, um, how much people feel that to be fun, but they might feel it's like exciting. They might feel that gives them a sense of purpose and they might feel like they're, they're standing up for a bunch of people who feel as though 
they're not being represented. And I'm sure Oliver got a lot. I mean, I don't know how many people on Twitter gave Oliver plaudits for his post, but I'm guessing at least some people, maybe through email gave him some plaudits. Um, so like, so, so, you know, there's, there, there, there's something about that, that, um, Stupid cat. It's all right. Something about that, about that that architecture, that uh, that Twitter architecture that encourages this. But yeah, like so. So let's let's get to the question of um, unless you have something to say about. No, no. It. I was going to say, why don't we talk about what what we think about the professional norm should be about yeah. around book reviewing, and then about the attitude of uh, authors to book reviews. Yeah. So I have a problem with book reviews in general uh, in our field, and it's probably every field, but. I think more. And you've in our done, you've done them, right? You've done them oh, for, I've done for a lot journals. Of book I, yeah. I'm a regular reviewer for a number of journals. I've done a ton of them, and I've also, and I don't know if you want to include this or whether you think this is separate. Been a reader for academic book presses. That is, you know, should we publish Joseph Margolis's last book, and then I yeah. write a report, right? Um, yeah. So I've done I've done quite a lot of both of those. Um, yeah. I'm assuming you've done some or a lot of both of those too. Yeah, I, I've done 12 book reviews for journals. So I do like one a year and I'm, you know, writing, writing one right now about a, a book about uh, Kant, of course. And um, one of the things I've noticed, at least in philosophy, there are some parts of the philosophy world that are very small cottage industries. Okay. So I write on Kant's philosophy of religion. Like that's part of my scholarly work. There aren't too many of us who specialize in Kant's philosophy of religion. And so I know personally, almost everybody who writes books in Kant's philosophy of religion. And I think I'm actually kind of lagging behind. I suspect most of the people in the field know literally everybody who writes books in Kant's philosophy of religion. And so there's like, I want to say between 10, 10 and 20 of us. Okay. And so we're reviewing each other's books. And the fact that, you know, there's a very high chance that you're going to run into this person at a conference, right? I, at least me, that really affects the way I behave myself. And I think the fact that philosophy is a small discipline and you generally review books in your very small subdiscipline of philosophy means that um, there's all these bad incentives for us to be dishonest with each other or either either way too complimentary or way too critical because, you know, hey, I know that guy and I hate him, so I'm going to like stick the knife in or I know that guy and he could use my help, so I'm going to be like really nice, right? Or... I know this guy hates that guy and I hate that guy too. So I'm going to, you know, and I just feel like that's like this, this worry about book reviewing in general. Now, as for the norms about why we should have this very um, sedate book reviewing culture. Well, it's precisely, I think, to, to allow us to overcome, right. Those personal alliances, the, the meaner you are, the more it's going to be unpleasant for you to deal with people face to face. And some people love that and a lot of people don't. And so if you have this norm of unbridled, you know, negative responsiveness, then my worry is that it's going to scare off a lot of the people who can, who are just too nervous to say what they truly think when they know that the reactions are going to be so aggressive. And when there's just this norm of like, no, we're going to treat each other, you know, we're going to respond to each other bloodlessly that just makes me a lot more comfortable writing negative reviews than I would and being more honest, right. Than I would if we have this norm where we should be super aggressive. On the other hand, if you think that we're way too nice to each other in philosophy, then maybe we should be more aggressive with our book reviews, right? Maybe we should be like, Hey, we're not, we don't have enough honesty in our book reviews. 
we need more people, not maybe not quite as much as man, but she's doing a service and like pushing the norms further out. So that's sort of my opening spiel. on. So is it your, it sounds to me like, cause of, of what you're, um, um, talking about, um, like whatever the norms should be mm-hmm. is driven a lot from the, the, the social dimension of philosophy as a discipline. And whereas I was thinking more along the lines of that, the norms should be dictated by the actual internal nature of, of, of the inquiry and what the discipline is. Right. In other words, um, it seems to me that, um, um, the norms should be driven and t- for reviewing should be driven entirely by what um, uh, philosophy is supposed to be about, right? Um, yeah, what's philosophy supposed to be about in your view? Well, like I mean, the truth. Or? I, mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's a big question. But I just yes, mean, no, 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 no. I, it's fair enough. But I mean, you know, uh, you know, and maybe this brings us to this point about ameliorative, right? I guess I don't think there should be any ameliorative philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, ameliorative is to make better, but yeah. in philosophy, we have to be open to, uh, to disputes over what counts as better. Right. And sure. if you already decided that I don't see how you're doing philosophy anymore, then you're just a, then you're just an ideologue. Right. I mean, if, if the dispute is, is a matter of values, right. Then, then you're just an ideologue. Um, and, um, and so it just seems to me that, you know, I couldn't give you a definition of what philosophy is about, but I could give you some sort of statements that kind of are indicative of it. Right. So one of those statements is, is be, you know, you go where the arguments lead. Right. Right. Um, 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 you, 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 you try to the extent that is humanly possible uh, to be dispassionate in your, in your, in your evaluation of where the arguments lead. Right. Um, um, where, where you are aware that you are, have a certain investment, you try to overcompensate in terms of, 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 of considering, uh, the, the contradictory, uh, approaches, right? All that sort of, those, those sorts of things seem to me to suggest a certain kind of, uh, a uh, certain kind of, of subject matter, um, and what it means to be professional with regard to it then would follow from that, right? And so what it means is, you know, um, if I'm an author and I'm writing about, um, um, uh, uh, sexism in the United States or in the 21st century, um, then I should be open to those who want to, uh, offer counter arguments against the, the arguments that I offer or counter evidence against the evidence that I present or counter inferences against the inferences I've drawn on the basis of the arguments and the evidence. And, and so, um, I guess I don't see any justification for the kind of, uh, the, the, the sort of visceral dimension of man's reaction to, uh, to, to, to the review or anybody else's. I guess I think philosophy in a very, very uh, deep way and fundamental way should be dispassionate. Yeah. So, I agree with that, um, and I, I wondered the extent to which I agree with it because of my own general anxiety when I deal with people getting mad at me, um, but certainly it's a place where I feel like I can flourish the more dispassionate it is, and also, frankly, I just feel like it's it's really easy to get emotional, and it's really easy to to reason in an emotional way, and so learning the skill of reasoning dispassionately is an important skill. Now, all that said... I think this, in fact, this ameliorative analysis, which I guess I should talk about while you were talking, I was trying to find uh, the definition of ameliorative Ameliorative analysis. just means with the aim of making better. 
Um, yeah, and so I, I was wondering if she if she like gave a um, what do you call a, um, a a sort of philosophical definition of an ameliorative analysis. It comes, I think, from a paper by Hasslinger back in you know what do we want race and sex to do? The paper in Noose in I think two thousand. And but I think the basic idea is that. Um, and I, I could be wrong, but I think the idea is this. When, when, when you say that racist or, or sexist or misogynistic is um, a mental state in people's minds, you always make it possible for people to deny they're being racist or sexist or misogynistic or whatever. And so, and yet there's, we have very good reason to think that this is a racist society, a sexist society, a misogynistic society. So as a result, we want to redefine the word so as to... Wait, we do? Make, well, if you think, oh, if you okay, think society okay. is okay. is racist or No, sexist, I thought you said we have very good reason to think, and I don't, I'm not so sure I agree that with that. Oh, you know, I'm not so sure I agree with yeah, that either. Yeah, I think okay. it's really complicated. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and, and so... Um, and so if you, if you accept that as a premise and you notice that the way people talk about race and sex and gender is such that they can always say, no, I wasn't being racist or whatever. And when a lot of people feel like they, they really are confident you were, you want to redefine the term. So now you have this movement of like racism without racists, right? That you have structural racism. I mean, one of the, and, and so, so the ameliorative analysis is saying, look, we, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make it a, a lot easier to count as racist or sexist or misogynistic. Um, and so that's why we're, we're, we're using that analysis. Like one problem with that, of course, though, is that people still, they don't know when you're using it, right? Like it, it still has a meaning that is not the ameliorative analyst's meaning, right? So when I call you racist, I might mean you are somebody in a racist system, which in that case might not have any moral sanctioning dimensions at all, but it's not going to be heard that way. And I don't see how I can't know that it's not going to be heard that way, right? And so so there's that worry about the ameliorative analysis. But I think what motivates the ameliorative analysis is, in fact, some very deep metaphilosophical differences between them and us. Where, you know, Marx had that famous line, the point is not to observe the world, but it's to change it, or something like that. That's the point. I don't know if he said that's a point of philosophy, but... That may be a point of something, but I don't see how that can be the point of scholarship, Right. I don't love that as a view, right? But if you think that um, that much of scholarship is, in fact, the way it is because of power relationships between people, right? I'm saying this because I'm just recapitulating the views of the dominant group, and these are the norms of discourse because of the dominant group. And I, you know, every time people say because of the dominant group, I want to say, give me the mechanism, right? Do a step-by-step thing. How did the dominant group make these the norms? But, you know, you're going to have people say, hey, whenever you say you should argue dispassionately, that's going to make it easier for people who don't have as much emotional tumult in their lives to meet these, these standards, it's going to be easier for them to meet it than for people who don't who, who who are more emotional to meet it. And so it's unfair to the people who are suffering more because you're basically forcing them to like swallow their emotions. That's, I think, the, the thought, right? Why dispassionate analysis isn't all it's cracked out to be because it basically privileges some groups of people and disprivileges others. Now, all that said, I think we, you, you could agree with all that and say it's still the best of a bad lot, right? Because what's the alternative? to dispassionate analysis. Well, it's going to be passionate analysis. And I guess you're going to say that the people who, I guess the thought is that the people who are most oppressed are going to win or something if you allow more passionate analysis because they have the most passion or something. 
But I don't see why that's true, right? That's the first thing. But you don't really, do you really think that the people who want this, who say they want this, yeah, would really accept the results if they got it? I mean, look. Tell me more. It's so, 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 you know, so often I just see this online where, you know, where people just keep trying to pick fights. And I always mm-hmm. wonder, okay, great. Let's say I say agree. Okay, let's have a fight. <laughs> now, are you going to yeah. accept losing? Uh, you know, I'm in other not. words, I don't see any, I see, I see nothing. I see no honor all the way down. Right. In other yeah. words, in other words, in other words, they're just going to claim then that the fight was unfair. Right. Um, yeah. um, in, in other words, the, you know, it almost sort of reminds me kind of, of sort of like the kind of Nietzschean critique of slave morality. Right. I mean, it, it just strikes me as a very dishonest, disingenuous, manipulative way of trying to win without actually having to, 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 to uh, have be, be involved in a fair fight. And then even if we say, well, we don't need fair, fair fights because things are structured and fair. So let's just fight. I say, great, let's just fight. And now I kick the shit out of you. Right. Oh, wait, well, that wasn't fair. You know, da, 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 you know, in, in other words, right. I don't, I don't see, I don't see them accepting the results of the fight any more than I see them accepting the results of the dispassionate dis- debate, right? Um, um, and so really what it seems to me, they're almost sort of what they're asking for is for their opposition to engage in just complete total annihilation and destruction, right? What you're basically doing is putting me in a position saying, okay, well, if you're not going to engage in the public space of reasons, because you're claiming they're stacked, and you're not going to accept the, the results of a fist fight, right? Um, but are then going to try to play games afterwards, then it seems to me what you're asking me to do is just simply destroy you, right? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> and so I don't know, why, why would you do that if you're in the weak position as you claim to be, right? Right. It seems to me that they know they're not in the weak position. Kate Mann is not in the weak position. She's in the dominant position. She represents the dominant attitudes and dominant class currently in the academy, right? Yeah. So the whole thing is disingenuous from the top to the bottom, right? <laughs> it's not like if we said, okay, let's just have a fist fight, that she, let's just have a knife fight, that she, then she would accept it if she lost, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so first of all, I, 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 I'm not disagreeing with you, and I, <laughs> I, I, I probably just agree with you. But to, to some extent, this is, this is another way of trying to get at it. So there's this um, – you know, there, there's the possibility that if you try to be altruistic, you'll make things worse than if you try to be egoistic. It can sometimes happen that if you try to help others all the time, you're just going to burn out, you're not going to do a good job, etc. And so you might, I could imagine reasoning like this. I'm pissed off. A lot of bad things have happened to me. I think those bad things are unfair. Um, so I just want to rage. And I think it's also unfair for people to rage back at me. Because it's, it's sort of like this. Imagine, imagine that like you've done all sorts of terrible things to me. And then I, I get back and I do one terrible thing to you. And I only do it because you've done these terrible things to me. And then you get mad at me for having the temerity to do something rotten to you. That, that makes it even worse, right? Because like here you are doing all these terrible things. And, and now when I, when I just am, when I'm just responding, you're like, that's not fair. Right. And I think that's how they see it. Right. And so like, just be angry, just be like aggressive. The rules are all, the system's always rigged against you. If you win, that's because you were doing the right thing. If you lost, that's because it was rigged. Right. This is, I don't know if this is a way to make people feel happier, but like at the same time, 
it's the sort of thing where it's like, look, my cause is just. So anger for me, but not for thee, because thy cause is not just. And like the, the, I think, I think an analogy that like, I, I think really helps. Like if you say there's no principles, there's no, well, actually, I know you're not a big fan of principles, but if there's no honor all the way down, as you said, that could be, yeah, I mean, the, the rules are, are, they're not the same. Like, um, it, it, I'm six foot two. My wife is five foot five. She like when it's time to reach for things, she asks me to reach. Right. And I don't say to her, well, I reached last time. So you reach this time. Right. Because like the, you know, I'm better at it than she is. And so that's differential, but it's still fair. And I think the thought with them is it's the same thing. Like in a society that's stacked against us, it's fair for us to be angry, but it's not fair to, for you to be angry back. So just like, be decent, have principles, and realize that your principles mean I can be angry and you are not allowed to be angry. But surely in philosophy, yeah, the question of whether you're in this, this, the position you claim to be is open to criticism, right? I mean, yeah. In other words, what it sounds to me like you're describing yeah. isn't really – what should be scholarly norm norms for the scholarly profession practice of of philosophy. Um, but rather the impossibility of it. Right. Um, I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that, well, we can't have this. We can't actually have philosophical disputes about, uh, what counts as justice or, uh, what counts as being wronged or, or how, how you know when somebody has been wronged or, I mean, all of this just sounds to me like, a declaration that 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 norms of professional philosophical reviewing writing etc um, not that they should be other than that they are but that there shouldn't be any at all because uh, because you can't you can't do philosophy is what it sounds like you're saying now maybe that's there, true but then yeah. I then, then then I even have less reason to listen to Kate Mann right I mean I thought I was supposed to be listening to her because she's a scholar at one of the top universities publishing books on one of the top academic presses. But if now you tell me, well, you know, we really can't just really have any, just any philosophical disputes about any of these things. And we can't philosophically interrogate any of these things because it's all just about power imbalances. Then fine. I'm well, why on earth would I read the book then? Right. I mean, why on earth would I even want to write a review about the book? Why on earth, you know, I'll just meet Kate Mann at the ballot box and see who wins. Right. Um, yeah. um, um, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I mean, that yeah, just sounds no. like doesn't sound plausible to me. But I, I, maybe, maybe I made a false dichotomy or maybe you did, but I think what they would say is at least, so I, I know Hasslinger says, um, like she thinks she's a moral realist of some sort. She thinks like in the struggle for justice, right? It can't just be who's got the most power. Like, like the people who say there's too much oppression in society are not saying that just because it's oppression of their group and that if they got in charge then it's okay for them to oppress other groups, that's not what they're saying. Um, what they're saying is that oppression is a bad thing. We have to end it. And you have to truly believe it's a bad thing. And she says, look, I'm not going to get into the metaphysics of moral realism, but she says on some level, you have to think you're right and the others are wrong. And it's not right. just power and opinion. But in philosophy, that's disputable, right? In philosophy, whether someone, whether, whether a claim of oppression is, is credible or not is disputable, right? Yeah, it should be disputable. And I think, I think what they might say is this. So let, let, so let me let me try to precisify the view or at least make it look nicer. Power relations often affect the way we think. Not always. We, it's very hard to get to the truth, but we can do it. 
And uh, we found it, in fact, to some degree with like some issues. And uh, now that we've found it, we have to uh, use that to like further push back the effect of power relations on people. And, and I think that, that they have to think that, um, that the people who are the oppressors must know in their heart that what they're doing is wrong, or at least many of them do, or many of them can be brought to see it or something like that. And so maybe that's the reason to reason, right? But you have to realize that there's going to be all this self-interest all the time. Like trying, like, here's the but question. Sure, but surely the, the dispute, uh, surely the question of, let's say even accept what you just said about power and, and oppression. Yeah. But again, in philosophy, Claims to those things have to be disputable, aren't they? I mean, I would dispute that Oliver Trolde has power over Cape Man. Indeed, I would argue that Cape Man has power over Oliver Trolde and that it's bloody obvious and I could give you 15 reasons why, right? Yeah. Um, now, if I, if that's not possible in philosophy, then I would argue philosophy is not possible, right? Then what you're so, really asking for is just warfare. Now, I'm yeah. happy to engage in warfare. But are yeah. you ready to lose the war? Right? <laughs> no, I no. I don't think they are, right? Um, so I, I guess I don't think that what's being asked for is kind of clean and kosher. I think what's being asked for itself is very cynical and disingenuous, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably. But at the same time, I, th- I think it's, again, it, it's not that whoever has the most power should win. It's rather that it's like my analogy about the height thing. Here's a different analogy. Some people just might be more naturally patient than others, right? So, like, when when a very patient person, like, seems to overreact to something, that's a worse transgression than when a very impatient person seems to overreact to something. Because the – and here's my way of putting it. It's, it's harder to be patient if you're an impatient person. So if you succeed in being patient, more praise to you. It's easier to be patient if you're a patient person. So if you don't see, succeed in being patient, more blame to you. And so I guess the thought is that now that that might look really unfair because I'm holding the patient person and the impatient person to two different standards, right? I'm being a lot more indulgent of the impatient person and a lot more demanding of the patient person. But maybe that's the way they would go about trying to justify it. Look, if you have everything handed to you on a silver platter, then um, you should expect we, we should expect you to be more cordial, more genteel, more friendly, more civil. If your life has been a constant struggle with people constantly trying to take advantage of you, constantly sexually harassing you, that kind of stuff, then we should be more indulgent to you because it's, it's harder for you to be patient. And I, I realize that, that that is basically saying that we, we can't hold them to the same standards. We have to hold them to lower standards. And I'm not sure if people are going to want to accept that. But that's me trying to put a face on that. Do you think, though, that, th- that there could be a possible professional norm within philosophy and philosophy still being philosophy under which uh, claims of privilege cannot be contested. Um, Criticisms of people operating from the allegedly oppressed side cannot be published um, or should be responded to through uh, invective, hostility, and perhaps threats of professional harm. I mean, are you, are you suggesting that this, that we could continue to have a discipline of philosophy and it would be 
something accredited that universities would be, would be a part of their accreditation to offer, um, um, and that that we would have professional credentials with respect to. I just don't think that's all that that's possible. But do you think it is? No, not 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 for long. I think what happens is that once you set up that set of differential norms, right? It's so hard to tell how oppressed somebody is as an individual, right? You might say that black people as a class are more oppressed than white people as a class. But like, does it follow from that, that Beyonce is more oppressed than the, the poor than white coal guy miner suffering in clinical depression? Right. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily follow. So you're going to have to take things on a case by case basis. So like, once you have that norm that you have to handle people who are from oppressed groups with kid gloves and you are allowed to take them off when you're dealing with people who are part of the dominant classes. And again, I'm not saying anybody has actually said this. This is me trying to justify what you're calling a lack of honor. I'm trying to say it's maybe it's this differential standards because of different experiences. The problem is, is that once you have that differential standard in place, it's just going to be too much incentive to game the system. There's just going to be too many people who are going to want to pretend to be oppressed in some way to get the kid gulf treatment or to try to tell other people that they're not oppressed so they can have invective. And then there's going to be all these metaphilosophical discussions about whether you are really oppressed or not. So whether it's okay for me to be mean to you or whatever and ever. And so to me, just having a sort of simple, straightforward, easy to understand neutral norm, which is let's just say, always be civil, don't get personal, don't have invective, that kind of stuff is just much harder to game, I think than one where it's like, if you have been this oppressed, you are allowed to be this mean. But if you have been this privileged, you have to be this nice. That's just going to be, I just don't see that's going to be sustainable for the long run. People are beginning to chafe under it and they're just going to cheat it and stuff like that. Isn't there also though a truth problem? I mean, I mean, look, I mean, I don't think that it, that it that that it depends upon any specific philosophical account of what truth is. Mm-hmm. To say that um, the kinds of norms that are implicated by man's reaction and the reaction of her gang to the review to a negative review of a book, right? Mm-hmm. That's presented in in scholarly space or semi scholarly space in this case, but certainly the last one scholarly space. Um, um, that if that's now going to become the norm, right? Um, and you now extend the logic of that norm, not just to book reviewing, but to publishing and more general and refereeing and more generally. Well, yeah, don't forget that, the Dem Prof Burn case too. Yeah, then I don't see how um, I don't see how philosophy anymore can even purport to be a truth-seeking discipline. If so, hold on a second. Let me just see if I understand you correctly. Imagine that, like, when you get because it could be you, the reason I'm saying this is because. Even if you accepted all the claims about privilege and their various valences, you know, privileged people sometimes say true things and unprivileged mm-hmm. people say false things, right? So that yeah. cannot be, that's not going to be, right, a reliable indicator of what's true and what's false, right? And, um, um, and, and so I, I assume that one of the reasons why anybody is willing to entertain the idea that philosophy should be an academic discipline and should be, should be included when considering whether to accredit institutions and so on and so forth is that it's a truth seeking discipline, right? Um, um, not that it's a, it's not that it's the arm of a political party, right? It's the ideological wing of a political party, but it's supposed to be a truth seeking discipline. Now, how can that be? If these sorts of norms that were, uh, that are being suggested by this sort of behavior are now actually become the, the, the disciplinary norms. So, so let me just make sure I understand you correctly. 
is the thought this once it becomes accepted that it's okay to respond to criticism in a very aggressive fashion, then what's going to happen is that people are basically just not going to engage each other. You're just going to have one camp over here doing their own thing, making fun of this other camp over here doing their own thing. They're not going to engage. And then there's not going to be any collaboration. And That's so- a social problem, which I do think is one of the problems. But no, I'm actually going more abs- more th- more abstract than that. What I'm saying is um, – to claim that a discipline credibly, to credibly claim that a discipline has as part of its aim, truth seeking, um, depends upon it's not adopting these sort of, these sort of, um, um, let's call them sort of, sort of standpointy norms, right? Um, 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 because for the reason that I just said, Oppressed people say false things and, and privileged people say true things, right? Um, um, whether a moral philosophy is one moral philosophy, uh, you know, issues, uh, judgments that are warranted or whether a political philosophy, uh, that, that advocates for a certain political system, uh, has good arguments, um, ultimately is going to have to be adjudicated by some appeal dispassionate to arguments and evidence, right? And yeah, so seem, it's, I, I don't see how, and, and so the norm, in other words, the, the problem with the man reaction, it's not this, that nobody's going to want to bother to review her books. It's that how would I have any confidence that man has done anything remotely connected to pursuing what's true or what's false, right? Um, when she doesn't even think that criticism of her thesis and her investigations is legitimate because the investigations and, 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 and theses of oppressed peoples must always be accepted, right? Um, um, I don't see how you get – in other words, she, she doesn't think that she demands interrogation, that her work mm-hmm. demands interrogation. Now, that can't be a norm in a discipline that claims to be truth-seeking, can it? Yeah, okay. So, so let me think about it like this then. You're, you're saying, I think, two things. Um, the first thing is that if you say, here are our presuppositions, it's off limit to question them. And now we're just going to run with them and see what we find. That's not truth seeking because what if the presuppositions are wrong? Right. right. And if you're not allowed to challenge them, then it's, you're, 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 it's really more, you're, it's like the Soviet union or something like that. You know, we assume Marxism and then move on from there. And I don't know what great social science the Soviet union produced or what great, I mean, there's some good humanistic work, right? Some dissidents were actually pretty good. But like, um, besides Vygotsky, I don't really know great Soviet social scientists. But. It's not an accident, I would suggest, that their main accomplishments scientifically are in the hard sciences where the ideology doesn't make any difference, right? I mean, I mean, right, if the right. spaceship crashes, it crashes, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So but then the, there's the other thing, which there's is no that, Soviet um, chemistry, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> well, there, there was Soviet biology, of course, Lysenkoism, right. but yeah, but that didn't go very far. Um, but, but yeah, the other thing you, you might be saying, and I, I think you're saying both, is that if you say the experiences of certain people because they're marginalized must not be questioned, then that also insulates them from criticism. And then once again, we're not a truth-seeking discipline. And I think the more fundamental thing is the presuppositions not being questioned because presumably the idea that the experiences of oppressed peoples aren't to be questioned comes from one of those presuppositions. And so, and so then the, the thing might be that they think they've established these presuppositions through like rigorous social science, you know, just look at economics and sociology, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically the overwhelming consensus. So we're not being dogmatic. We're just look, this is what the best social science says. Now about that, I'm, 
I'm not, I used to be super big fan of social science. I've become less and less of a fan of social science. I think it's, it's, it's suggestive, but it's just so hard to establish anything conclusively in social science. I would also say that like in natural science, there are times I think when questioning the presuppositions is just a waste of everybody's time because at this point they've been established so thoroughly. I mean, it's very hard for you to imagine how you could, how evolution basically speaking could not be the correct theory of human change. You know, how you know what natural it. science, that's a good example. That's a good example because what I want to say is philosophy, especially and distinctively is job. Yeah. is to question presuppositions. Hence, things like the philosophy of science, right? I mean, yeah. you know, what constitutes evidence, right? What yeah. What is the actual logic of explanations, right? Now, those are things that scientists don't question. They operate with a working assumption as to what these things are, right? In other, in other words, and, and it would be a waste of their time to do so. But that's exactly what philosophy is supposed to do, right? So the idea that now, not in science, but in these heavily disputed, politically disputed, heavily ideologically laden areas where not philosophy should not be in the business of doing that. I just, just don't see then what's left of philosophy. You know, and, and although I don't see how these norms that are being suggested by the behavior of the Mans and the Stanleys and the, and the Kuklas and the, et cetera, I don't see how they lead anywhere. But at the end of the day, the end of philosophy as a professional academic discipline. So let, let me, let me respond to this in one way. Yes. Um, you said what philosophy does is question presuppositions. Now, one of the things you could question is whether or not philosophy should question presuppositions, right? That's our presupposition as philosophers, but I'm willing to question it, right? So give me your argument, I would say, that, that philosophy shouldn't question presuppositions, right? It better be a pretty good one, right? Because <laughs> this is what we've been doing for a long time. Maybe they have given an argument somewhere that philosophy, there are some presuppositions that philosophy shouldn't question. I don't know why, but... If they, if they establish that argument to their own satisfaction, to that extent, they could be philosophers who are like self-immolating philosophers, right? Like philosophy, you know, Hume sort of had this at the end of the treaties, right? Like reason sort of kills itself if, yeah. if it's not balanced by if the passion. If pushed past a certain point, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yes. so, um, so, so perhaps something like that could be going on that like philosophy is too questioning of presuppositions. And as a result, like, you know, it doesn't, it gets in the way of important social changes or something like that might be what they're saying. Um, now I would respect, I think- actually, I would kind of respect that if they, if they're look, if the man's of the world were saying, uh-huh. we need to stop doing philosophy. Yeah. Because philosophy investigates too deep. And as a result undermines or has the potential to undermine significant moral progress that we that yeah. we have made and that we want to make. Yeah. I would respect that in the sense that okay, I think that that's something you could say. It's an argument you could make, right? Um but to say that no 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 we can dismantle all that but we're still doing philosophy, right? Um um I I don't I don't I don't have respect for that, right? I mean, to try and turn philosophy to say that that's what philosophy actually is, right? Yeah. It would is, be an ameliorative ideological advocacy. I don't. I, th- that to me seems not credible, given the history of the subject and given what it seems we want from the subject in all these much less charged areas. Right? Again, I go back to philosophy of science. Right? 
No, scientists should not sit there and wonder about what, what constitutes evidence or what's the actual logic of explanation. But the idea that philosophers shouldn't is crazy. That's exactly why we would want to have a philosophy of science, right? Now, that's in an area where there isn't a lot of very heavily charged, um, emotionally racked disputes. But yeah. it seems to me that it would be more needed and more required where there are, right? <laughs> not less. Yes. Yeah, I think because where there are more heated disputes is probably because there's less agreement about certain basic principles. That's, there's so, less agreement about those presuppositional fundamental things, right? Right. And so, so like, um, you know, what's funny is that when you said you'd have more respect for them if they gave that argument, it's been ages since I've read this book, but if I'm not mistaken, that was the argument of the closing of the American mind. That like Bloom was a Straussian, Alan Bloom, who wrote that book, was a Straussian, and he thought that basically Nietzsche was the guy who went too far. Yeah. Right? He, like, pulled the rug out from everything, and once you, like, sure, he's right, but if you say he's right, then nothing is sustainable anymore. And so you have to just say, no, this far, but no further, right? And so I could see maybe maybe that would be a way of, like, making this whole view work. Like, look, uh, it's not philosophical, uh, according to the standard sense, because philosophy, according to the standard sense, taken too far, ends up stripping, you know, disenchanting the world. And so what we have to do is re-enchant the world by saying it's off limits to question these basic pre- presuppositions. The problem with this, of course, is that so few people hold these presuppositions that they're saying are unquestionable, which makes it a very sort of intellectual vanguardy kind of thing, which is sort of like, and I'll see, you know, and I, I, and frankly, I'm not sure I think Bloom is right either. Uh, and so there's another thing. I do think we can question all our presuppositions and that we might be able to get pretty far in responding to some of those challenges. But anyway, yeah. it yeah. would be funny if, if, if Kukla and Bloom meet at the same spot on top of the mountain. Yeah, I um, just, I, I guess I, what I would say is that, look, part of, part of when I say that, you know, um, I would actually have more respect if that's the argument that was being made. Um, I also, what I would also say is that if that's the argument that's being made, then, what we're arguing about now shifts to a different level, right? Now, if that's your claim, right, mm-hmm. then now it's incumbent upon me to explain why I think that nonetheless it's important that we retain this as a professional academic truth-seeking discipline within the institution of the academy, right? Um, in other words, I would then need to, to sort of make, a, make an argument for the utility of this kind of analysis in spite of what you're claiming it's the, the harmful effects of it are right. Um, and, other, and, so, and so then we're having a different kind of argument. And again, it's an argument that I can understand. Right. Um, and it's an argument that I understand why you go this way. If the argument on this side is prevails or why you go, but notice something that still does require us to have an argument. Right. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Like again, otherwise it's just warfare. Right. And then are you willing, are you willing to accept the end of the warfare, which is maybe that you lose it? I don't think so. Right. I I wonder if the philosopher of our age is Al Ghazali. Like, um, you know, he wrote uh, the incoherence of the philosophers, I think where he was, you know, basically, you know, he was apparently a very skilled philosopher who concluded that it leads you away from like revelation and like true wisdom. And it just basically sounds like Tertullian a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, there was a response to Ghazali called the incoherence of the incoherence. But like, it's, um, uh, it makes me want to read like these moments from the past where, where, where 
where people did think that like, hey, here's the argument in favor of keeping things off limits, right? We the, These things we're not even going to talk about. And, you know, like it makes me wonder how often there are these taboos where, where certain things were just unquestioned in philosophy. Like I wonder if what, what the taboos were about, um, you know, during the age of ordinary language philosophy, right? Which was like, I know at time that you really, really liked philosophy. Um, and, you know, what, what were the things they did not think were within bounds? And it was probably stuff like, Kripke and metaphysics, right? Where it's just like... You know, look, you know, there's a great example, though, right? I hate contemporary um, uh, modal logic-inspired metaphysics, right? All that Timothy Williams stuff, and stuff. I, I can't stand it, right? I think it's terrible. Um, but I don't think that that's a reason why Timothy Williamson should be driven out of philosophy or why journals shouldn't publish his work or why if he publishes something, um, someone shouldn't write a review of it or vice versa. Right. I mean, in, in other words, what, what, what I, what I reject is what seems to be the suggestion of norms that are, um, are, are really fundamentally anti-intellectual. I mean, it even goes below, beyond um, truth seeking, right? Mm-hmm. These are anti-intellectual norms and in what purports to be an intellectual ex- enterprise. Don't you think? I. Uh, yeah, to some degree, I do. And what, what it makes me think about, there's this psychologist. He was at a, I teach in the California State University system. He was also in California State University. I don't think he's there anymore. I think he retired. A guy named Kevin McDonald. Have you heard of him? Yes. Right. And so he wrote, you know, I think the book is called The Culture of Critique or something like that. He wrote this three volume series, which is basically a brief for anti-Semitism, right? What he, what he was saying was that, you know, the Jews are a group that are very obstreperous and unlikable and people don't like them for good reason. And so they have developed these strategies over the millennia to sort of like inculcate themselves into like Western society and then find a way to secretly run it. And so like all the main, like they're trying to destroy Western civilization from the inside because they think it's been mean to them or something like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I haven't read his book, um, I, I highly doubt I would find it persuasive. Um, I don't know to what extent he's following scholarly norms, but let's say he's sincere about this. Would you think that such a person should not even be argued with? I mean, I would think he should be argued with personally, but I don't know. I how do you- too. I do too. I think it's actually especially important that people like that are argued with. Um, yeah. I think in the long run, especially it's important um, you know, you asked me before whether I thought Trolley's very um, calm, even self self implicating reaction yeah. to what I took to be really an uncivil attack on him was the correct thing to do. And my answer is, um, for, for the sake of the academic, for the sake of the health of the academic enterprise and philosophy, absolutely it was. Mm-hmm. Now, now, personally, I told him myself personally that I thought he was far too nice to her. <laughs> um, but, but yes, I mean, this whole thing is only going to survive if people like Trolley behave like the way he did, right? Which was noble despite being shat on multiple times and slandered and that he maintained his calm, he maintained his composure and he stuck to the facts and to the arguments. That's the only way, right? Um, um, otherwise we're drawn into like the Trump, the Trump logic of the universe, right? I mean, I mean, that, 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 
you know, that's such so much of the irony of this is that what so many of these people are asking for is exactly what Trump wants, right? And what mm-hmm. I just don't understand is why they're so sure they're going to win it, right? Um, um, uh, that that's what really puzzles me. I mean, I mean, you know, Oliver Trolley, you know, wrote a perfectly normal, fair critique, and and. You should embrace it, right? You should you should be happy that it's being that your book is being taken seriously, right? You should be happy that people want to bother to criticize it, right? Um, and um, and and to and to do what to behave that way, I just don't understand what it is. I, I I sometimes wonder whether these people really understand what it is they're asking for, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I I think I do think there's a sense that they're going to win. And maybe that if, if they really thought they weren't going to win, they might change their behavior. Uh, but, you know, the, the arc of history bends towards progress, I believe somebody said. So how can they not win? History is going to make them win. That's I assuming that you're right, that you're the one on the side of progress. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and right, because I'm never sure of that, because we're never sure of that or shouldn't be. Is, yeah. you know, listen, how many times have I argued for this kind of procedural liberalism, right? This is why. You don't yeah, know, know whether you're on the right side of privacy. And if you think you do know, you should be really worried, right? Um, 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 because, you know, either maybe you're not, or maybe you are, but your side doesn't win anyway. Or And so if we at least have these kind of purportedly neutral standards and norms in place, yeah, everybody kind of gets a fair shake, and nobody, when they're in charge, gets to really kick the shit out of the people who aren't, right? Um, um and it just seems to me like these people just they just want the shoe to be on the other foot. And they haven't really thought through what that then means. What it means is that when your gang isn't in power next time, the other people are gonna come and kick the living shit out of you. That's what it means. <laughs> and I, I don't know why anybody would want that, right? Why would anybody want that? And how could anybody who's not six years old think, oh well, my gang is just gonna be in power forever, right? Well, I will say this. I, I didn't. I didn't see nine eleven coming. I didn't see the two thousand eight financial crisis coming. I didn't see Brexit coming. I didn't see Trump coming. I did see the coronavirus coming. I was good on that. Oh, did so you really? I, I, yeah, in about February, mid February. Okay, okay, like, okay. I thought you meant like two, you three years ago. You saw it coming. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. I was like, I was early, but not like a prophet. But anyway, um, but so so I'm used to history surprising me, and and not bending toward any particular direction. That said, I would, here I go again, I'm sure I'm going to be disproved on this too. I would be shocked if academia all of a sudden goes right wing, right? I think if you're an academic, I think you can be pretty confident that you're going to be in charge for a good long time if you're, if you have the right kind of political persuasion. And that I don't know how much of an accounting for there is when if somehow your side gets displaced, I don't know if like people come and hunt you down. But there doesn't, you don't have to, it does, your side doesn't have to be displaced in academia, right? Your side has, has to be, be displaced politically, and you can watch your academic institutions get this get stripped, just stripped. Yes. All you need is a guy a few little few degrees worse than Trump, and he'll strip you all of every penny you have, right? So maybe it's not smart, right? Yeah. Don't go, yeah. you know, it's not smart to go taunt the proud, to go taunt the, 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 the militia guys walking around with, with, with AR 15s. That's just not smart, right? Um, 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 and, and, and it's not smart to create a situation in which that's what everybody is, 
is a guy with an AR-15, right? I mean, I mean, and I feel a little bit like these that the norms we're being asked to accept. I, I think there actually is a very strong analogy between what's going on in academia and what's going on more generally, and I think that a sort of procedural liberalism is the answer to both, right? Um, what I'm arguing for in terms of these neutral standards in academia and 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 professional professionalism is a kind of procedural liberalism within scholarship, right? Within is what it really is. Um, um, don't assume that you're right about everything. Understand that even if you are, the wrong guy gets to have a view too. Understand that, you know, truth requires that we kind of all sort of examine everything, including our own most cherished things. And acknowledge that we, none of us can do that perfectly, you know, in other words, everything that we've all thought about this until about five minutes ago. Yeah. Um, um, and I Al- guess, although there is something highly unromantic about procedural liberalism, which is why we keep on trying to get something else. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Is there anything else you want to say about norms in terms of reviewing or scholarship more generally? Anything we missed? Anything? No, no. This has already gone about an hour and a half. So yeah, I think we're, yeah, there's a good yeah, stopping point. Yeah. Um, well, Robert, thank you very much. And of course, we're going to link to all the relevant things so people can see them for themselves. And um, do you, I don't know, do you have any previews coming? Do you have any dialogues you've been planning with anybody that might be uh, on the on deck? I have been planning, but I have not sent the emails yet. But I, I've, I've got a few targets, and I'll tell you after the dialogue ends. Sounds <laughs> good, I've got man. In mind. All right. All right. Thank you so much, and I will uh, see you in the next one. See ya. Ciao.